Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Hello, it's November 21st, 2019, and my name is Brady Deaton of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Today, we'll be talking to Ken Poon, the Director of Analytics for Blackstone Energy, about, generally speaking, how Canada puts a price on carbon, but with a bit of a focus on the federal government's car- what we call the federal government's carbon tax. Ken, welcome to Fair Talk. Oh, thank you for having me. Ken is also an alumni of our program, and we're very proud of Ken. And Ken, I thought you might, I guess, I don't know, you graduated around 2006 from the undergraduate program, and then we're in the master's program. And today, you're the director of analytics. I thought you could maybe talk a little bit about your journey to this point and how your role at Blackstone Energy gives you a unique insight into the programmatic and industry perspective about the carbon tax. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Brady. Uh, so yeah, I graduated around 2007. Uh, at that point, I was still in a environmental sciences program, uh, focusing on ecology and water resources. And I think kind of, um, through circumstance, Matt Brady, uh, who I took a course with, and that kind of really got me interested in environmental economics, uh, specifically. And, uh, I thought, you know, uh, two years of a master's program seems like a good idea at the time, especially when it was during the recession. Uh, so I kind of went in there and I really kind of fell in love with uh, economics and really just understanding the concepts of how kind of to tie uh, economic theory together with kind of applied uh, situations. Uh, so uh, once I graduated, I uh, went on to work with the department for about five years or so, uh, doing various papers and uh, a, a number of uh, kind of policy and uh, regulatory research and looking at their imp- economic impacts on the agricultural industry. And then uh, four years ago, I uh, moved into uh, this uh, Blackstone Energy Services company uh, where I focused a bit more on uh, kind of carbon pricing and cap and trade, and now I'm focusing more on analytics. So uh, to back up a little bit, uh, what my company does uh, is uh, we're generally an energy management company. At least that's how we started out. Uh, we focused on helping our clients uh, procure natural gas and electricity helping them manage their energy portfolio, so no surprises in terms of understanding cost, market implications, and how that would impact their energy expenditure. Um, And over the years, I think what we found was that environmental regulations and uh, carbon pricing was starting to kind of become a bigger thing in in these uh, for for all our clients uh, and for them to understand. Because really even five years ago, I think knowledge on how these kind of pricing system uh, apply to industry, uh, it was fairly muddy. It hadn't really been tried in a lot of places at that point, especially not in Ontario. Uh, so when cap and trade came along, we really took on the mantle of helping our clients understand and walk them through kind of the regulatory process, how to participate in these programs, and ultimately how these kind of policies impact their organization. And, and not really just in terms of uh, specifically on only their pricing, but also uh, helping them figure out uh, management strategies. So, uh, for example, uh, if they are going to have to renew their facility uh, or do maintenance on, on a piece of land that they really have been neglecting due to lack of funding, uh, rather than just buying a new boiler, could they do something where uh, they, they put in uh, 
uh, solar energy or they put in geothermal uh, to really kind of make that energy switch to to more green source. And uh, I think kind of what we saw was that uh, these kind of pricing policy really did help them push uh, that kind of uh, transition, uh, not only because of the price itself, but uh, really getting our clients to uh, help their organization understand uh, how, how these kind of policies really impact them in the longer term. That's great. Now, for the listeners out there, this podcast is happening in our land economics class. And one of the key things that we try to work on in land economics and in economics as general is, is not only how to answer questions, but how to ask them. And so for the majority of the remainder of this podcast, the questions are going to be asked by students in this class. And I'll begin. Hi, Ken. I just wanted to thank you again for coming to talk to us today. Um, we wanted to take a minute to discuss the actual structure of carbon pricing at the provincial and federal level. So the next couple questions will be focused on this area. I understand that both provincial and federal governments can take uh, can place a price on carbon dioxide. Can you explain the differing responsibilities between the provincial and federal governments with respect to carbon tax? Yeah, sure. So um, I think uh, before I really go ahead to answer your question. Uh, I kind of want to break down the term carbon tax a little bit and uh, help our listeners understand uh, what, what carbon means and what tax means. Uh, from a carbon perspective, uh, I, I think it, it's important to note that we're not just, uh, or at least the federal government's not just putting a price only on carbon dioxide, but in all greenhouse gases. Uh, the reason that kind of, kind of carbon dioxide keeps coming up is because that's generally the benchmark in how we would measure uh, different types of greenhouse gases and their impact to the environment. Uh, so for example, uh, greenhouse gases that are under this regulation would be methane, nitrous oxide, and uh, a number of hydrofluorocarbons uh, as well. And they all have kind of differing impacts in terms of uh, how long they would stay in the atmosphere and uh, what their uh, what we call global warming potential would be on a per molecule basis. So, uh, for example, when it comes to methane, uh, over a hundred years time span, uh, methane's uh, impact is generally about 36 molecules of uh, carbon dioxide. So, what we would uh, convert that impact into what we call a carbon dioxide equivalent. Uh, so when we when we put a price on carbon, it's really putting a price on uh, greenhouse gas in general. But I, I think kind of just a lot simpler to talk about it in terms of carbon because it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Uh, in terms of tax, uh, it's it's also not really a tax. Uh, so the way if you kind of read into the regulation, uh, they really talk about it as a regulatory charge. And uh, there are kind of legal ramifications in the differences, but I think for a lot of the consumers, it's okay to call it a carbon tax because the uh, the end the end result is the same. We're putting a price on carbon. Uh, so uh, generally, I'll be using these terms interchangeably throughout the podcast. Uh, so and now it's easier to kind of call it a carbon tax. So even if the terminology isn't exact, I'll kind of continue to call it that. Now, um, in terms of kind of the different structures and the different responsibilities between the federal and provincial government, uh, it, under the kind of the environmental concern is a shared jurisdiction between the province and the federal government. And in this case, uh, what we've seen previously was that uh, there were a number of provinces that have kind of gone ahead and enacted their own carbon policy or greenhouse gas uh, emission reduction policy. So we've seen kind of policies coming from BC as early as 2008. Uh, we've seen Quebec having their own cap and trade policy. Ontario also had their own cap and trade policy as well. Uh, and Alberta also had a program in place uh, before kind of this federal uh, program came into place. Now, 
what happened uh, two years ago ar around that point is uh, the federal government came in and said, uh, we need to have a minimum standard on our carbon pricing program. So, and, and that's kind of when they enacted uh, what we call the Pan-Canadian Framework, which is a national-wide program that covers all the provinces. And the terminology there is that it's a backstop. So uh, the federal government would uh, impose a minimum standard on all the carbon pricing programs across the provinces and the territories. Those that are able to meet or exceed that uh, standard are able to keep their program. Uh, those that fall short or that don't have a program falls under this, uh, falls under the federal standard. Thanks, Ken. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of the federal carbon tax regards to levels. Um, my understanding is that the federal carbon tax is broken into two different structures, fuel charges and output-based pricing. Can you please explain the two programs and how they're implemented? Yep. Uh, so uh, you're exactly correct. There are uh, two sections of the program. Uh, the fuel charge one is something that we're pretty familiar with as uh, kind of uh, regular day users of uh, natural gas and uh, fuel. And, and what that is is really just a flat tax on a per unit of consumption of uh, natural gas or any kind of fuel there. Um, and so that program, uh, from that perspective, uh, what we see is generally an escalating price on a per unit of uh, molecule of natural gas or fuel uh, that escalates over time. Um, so uh, that really covers a lot of kind of the general fuel consumption across uh, the country. Now, the more kind of the detailed and the more intricate aspect of this program is the second piece, which is the uh, output-based pricing system, the OBPS. And for that piece, that's specifically for uh, what we consider to be large emitters. Uh, so uh, any anyone that are over 50,000 in emissions uh, on a per annual basis, uh, 50,000 uh, tons of CO2 equivalent. And uh, for that program, uh, what, what it really aims to do is allow uh, some flexibility for these large emitters to uh, manage their uh, carbon exposure and also in some cases actually reduce some of the uh, effective carbon prices as well. Okay, thanks, Ken. So our, our question is about large emitters, but you um, kind of answered that. Um, the follow-up question was, how does the tax apply to the agricultural sector? Yeah, so there's two ways that the tax currently applies to the agricultural sector. Uh, so I'll talk kind of in general first. Uh, in, in the agricultural sector, there's generally a fuel tax exemption, uh, but that's really only for truck and tractor use and not for personal vehicle use. Uh, so, and anything that are used for buildings or industrial machines like rain dryers as well, that's also not part of the exemption. Uh, so, uh, but in order to kind of get that exemption, uh, you really just need to fill out a form with uh, Canada Revenue Agency and to be able to kind of apply for, uh, for that credit. Um, but kind of the second piece of that is uh, greenhouses within the ag sector also have a specific uh, exemption, uh, which is that they only really pay 20% of the fuel charge, and, uh, but they also have to apply for an exemption certificate. And then uh, our next question is, if I was to tell someone what the present price of carbon was in Canada or Ontario, what would I tell them and how could they expect it to evolve over time? Yeah, so uh, there's generally two ways to talk about uh, carbon prices. Uh, the first way is kind of uh, what, what the government have generally uh, uh, really published uh, 
a lot is uh, kind of on a per ton of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent basis. Uh, right now, uh, what that is is uh, $20 a ton in 2019, starting in April, and that would go up every $10 per ton uh, every year until April 2022, when that price is going to stabilize at $50 per ton. Now, uh, kind of it, it, that that kind of uh, pricing isn't very useful for everyday users. So generally, uh, what we like to talk about with industry as well is uh, kind of in the term of either an energy or a volumetric perspective. So on a per cubic meter of natural gas that you would consume, uh, what would that charge look like? On a per liter of gasoline you would uh, consume, what would that charge look like? Um, so, uh, and in kind of in the way that the regulations are in right now, they're actually uh, prescribed that way in kind of these volumetric or energy units. So for natural gas, right now, that's about $0.04 cents per cubic meter uh, consumed, and that would go up to about $0.10 cents per cubic meter in 2022. Uh, and then for gasoline, that's about $0.04 cents per liter, uh, going up to $0.11 cents per liter in 2022. So uh, the, the good thing about kind of this pricing program is that those uh, path rates are fairly prescribed. We don't really expect a lot of changes between now and 2022. Now, in the future, once we hit that point, uh, currently the plan is for that carbon pricing to stay level. Uh, but it, it could be the case a couple of years down the road, once they review the program and look at the efficacy and the efficiency of how they're doing things, uh, we could see some of the carbon price change as well, or other, uh, other areas of the program could also change. Uh, hi, Ken. So I'm um, just following up on the federal carbon tax. So... One uh, crucial question that people usually wonder about the carbon tax is how the revenue will be collected and where the revenue will be allocated afterwards. Yeah, so uh, right now uh, the revenue are generally collected by uh, the fuel distributors uh, for the fuel charge portion of it. So uh, what that is is uh, on your natural gas bill, uh, you are going to start seeing lines if you pay your utilities. Uh, you're going to see the lines under a specific line called the Federal Carbon Levy. And that's kind of collected by the uh, natural gas utility or fuel distributors, which then is going to get remitted back to the government. Uh, now, uh, so that's the collection process. Uh, in terms of the uh, distribution and how it's kind of redistributed to, uh, to Canadians is that it actually, 90% of what's collected actually goes back to your individual tax returns as a tax credit. And, uh, so, and, and that's kind of the idea of a, of a, of revenue neutrality is that uh, they are collecting the tax to implement uh, a price signal, uh, but generally no impact on a wealth perspective. Uh, now, they do keep 10% of that money back, and that actually goes towards uh, public sector. So um, municipalities, uh, universities, schools, and hospitals generally, what we consider uh, and what we call the mush sector. Uh, so uh, the reason kind of uh, this program came into place is that uh, these uh, these kind of uh, public sector uh, uh, entities can also have a fairly large carbon footprint uh, in, in just because they have a fairly large building portfolio. But uh, because they're not industrial, um, they're, they're not really participating in any industrial activities, uh, they're not able to participate in the kind of the industrial output pace program. So, and what that means is that they're kind of left uh, into their own devices and figuring out how to reduce their emission or manage their carbon costs. So that 10% is meant to help them uh, look into different ways to reduce their carbon emission and reduce their energy usage. Uh, and uh, the other piece of this is that as uh, that carbon price goes up, 
uh, on an annual basis, the rebate also goes up, so that 90% also increases. And uh, the the refund and the uh, fund going into the mush sector, into the public sector, also increases as well. So to build on Cody's last question, I want to build a better understanding of the consequences of a carbon tax. We discussed earlier that some provinces have their own plans, but for those who don't, there is a national plan. Do differences between provincial and federal plans influence industry-level decisions? For example, might certain industries prefer one province to another depending on how they are regulated? Yeah, uh, so I think what you're referring to here is uh, the idea of leakage, which we, we talk about a lot and which is a major concern when they design these programs. And to give the listener a little bit uh, detail on what leakage means is uh, exactly what you just talked about. Uh, if uh, you implement some kind of a carbon pricing program uh, and, and they kind of take their businesses and move it elsewhere without uh, any or with, with a less stringent or uh, or no carbon pricing or no carbon policy at all, then really you're not any better off in implementing carbon pricing because uh, globally uh, you're still kind of generating the same amount of emission, uh, meaning that the uh, policy is ineffective. So in order to kind of um, address that concern, uh, that's one of the key components of the Albert Pace pricing system, uh, the OBPS program for industrials, uh, which is meant to address that leakage risk. So in this program, uh, when, uh, when a large industrial user is in the program, they don't uh, necessarily pay the carbon cost on a per unit of natural gas or per unit of energy use basis. They actually pay uh, in comparison to a national benchmark that's been set. Uh, so uh, let's say for a cement uh, company or a cement in, uh, factory, if they are emitting on a per unit of output basis, if they're if they're better than the benchmark, they actually get to uh, generate some credit and they get to keep that credit for future use. It's only if they uh, exceed that benchmark, they pay the difference between uh, what they've emitted versus the benchmark. So it's really that marginal impact of carbon pricing that they need to pay. So in effect, uh, this actually reduces the carbon cost by quite a bit. Uh, and it helps kind of uh, really alleviate that concern that they may just really go elsewhere and uh, pollute. And in a lot of cases also, I think uh, it's it's difficult to really think about carbon pricing programs as its own. You really got to uh, think about it as a wider context of that uh, pan-Canadian carbon policy framework as well, because there are other kind of levers that the government do pull in terms of trying to keep the industry uh, away from moving. Uh, to kind of less uh, less regulated jurisdictions. Uh, for example, uh, some of these industries would see uh, incentives uh, for them to uh, further reduce energy use or for them to manage their uh, carbon uh, processes a little bit better. So uh, yes, I think uh, there is uh, always kind of some concerns and some uh, considerations when it comes to uh, carbon pricing uh, differences between one province versus another. But I don't think that difference is as stark as uh, what uh, I think the media makes it out to be. Thanks, Ken. Um, you talked earlier about some of the emission levels and how they're kind of regulated. So uh, going at this, um, in terms of reductions, um, what are the government's target emission reductions and how do the government accurately assess whether these targets are actually met in the end? Yeah. Uh, so the major target that we've kind of put in place now and that we've submitted as part of the Paris Agreement is uh, 30% below 2005 levels. And interestingly enough, that was actually set by the Harper government, so before the Liberals came into play. 
Uh, and in order for us to, uh, for the federal government to really measure how well they are meeting that target, um, there's always kind of been discussions about what is the best approach in terms of capturing uh, the, the total emission from a country. Uh, currently, and this is standard practice in most countries, is they look at kind of their economic activity. So uh, they, they basically source uh, what, what uh, we call the input-output uh, tables. Uh, and, and that really captures the inflows and the outflows of the uh, country in terms of economic activities. And they assign uh, carbon, uh, they basically assign uh, carbon emissions uh, based on those activities rather than from a, from a consumption or uh, from, a, from a production perspective. Uh, and if overall, when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to kind of national measures in terms of how well the country is doing against a target, that's the information they would use. Okay, thanks. Um, another thing that I would say a lot of consumers and maybe even the listeners that would uh, be curious about is how this affects their uh, other product prices in the market. So um, what is the impact of the consumers in terms of raising prices of other consumer goods, and does the rebate actually effectively mitigate um, this concern of how they allocate different prices? Yeah, uh, I think this, always, this question always comes up, uh, so I think this is a great question. Uh, so, yes, I do believe it is uh, meant to raise the prices of certain consumer goods, uh, but I also think that's the point of having a carbon price, is uh, what, what you effect, essentially want to do with a carbon price is provide a price signal for uh, capturing really uh, negative externalities that uh, certain decisions you would make in, procure, in purchasing uh, will lead to kind of negative environmental impact. So. Uh, that yes, that is the point, and it is supposed to make certain things more expensive. Now, um, there, there are there are two kind of uh, when we when we kind of take a look at this pricing, we we do usually find two different uh, I, I guess kinks to that idea. Uh, the first one is uh, usually what we find is that pricing is because it is tacked on on a per per fuel basis. The underlying commodity price also shifts up and down, and a lot of times that's actually more volatile, and uh, compared to uh, what the carbon price would be. So, uh, for example, um, this is something uh, something we looked into about a week or two ago. Is that if we take a look at natural gas prices uh, with carbon pricing uh, in 2022, uh, we were actually uh, even with that carbon pricing of $50 a ton, we're actually hitting around the um, the average natural gas prices we would have seen over the last 15 years or so. So uh, there is kind of questions about where, as a pure price signal, how well that works uh, uh, just on its own. But uh, one thing to really keep in mind is that um, it's supposed to be a relative price against other goods you would buy now. So, for example, uh, your your carbon price uh, would increase kind of the cost of owning a, a car with an internal combustion engine over its lifetime, compared to uh, an EV or electric vehicle that you would get today. So uh, what, it's, what that carbon pricing is meant to really signal is reduce that uh, gap in prices between the two different type of products. So it makes uh, a carbon-intensive uh, purchasing choice more expensive and makes a carbon-efficient or a lower-emission choice uh, more uh Kind of more attractive in, in kind of purchasing decisions, and, and we're actually seeing that a lot in terms of kind of long-term uh, procurement of uh, really energy, and as well as kind of 
the way that uh, our client manages, manages their buildings, et cetera. So instead of looking at a, um, at a co-generation unit which uses natural gas to generate their own electricity uh, to offset you know, electricity costs, et cetera, they're now looking at solar, they're now looking at geothermal. Uh, so I think kind of it's difficult to really just look at the price itself on the commodity basis. You really want to look at it in terms of a... Uh, you really want to understand it in terms of how it impacts on the different business decisions, because a lot of these uh, a lot of these changes are going to be longer term changes, and and that's the point is that uh, we, we're putting in a price now, uh, but we do kind of start uh, shifting that uh, analysis and shifting that thinking to uh, making uh, making decisions that are more carbon neutral or or, or more uh, or more green, uh, so to speak, uh, over a longer term of time. Hello, Ken. Um, some people are concerned about the effect of a tax on a firm competitiveness in Canada. I imagine this varies depending on the industrial sector being examined. From your experience, can you tell us how do the different industry sectors feel about this tax? Uh, so, yeah, this, this did came up a lot, especially, I think, kind of around the time when uh, cap-and-trade came along in Ontario. Uh, cap-and-trade went away, and then the kind of federal pricing came back. Uh, so it, I think um, working with industry closely, it's uh, very difficult to paint kind of the industry's opinion within this, with uh, just the same brush. A lot of times when we when we talk of industries, there are generally different actors even within uh, uh, industrial emitter uh, where they would be championing more uh, environmental. Uh, environmentally conscious decisions. Uh, and I, I think kind of a lot more businesses are starting to do that now. Now in terms of kind of the, um, in terms of the, how industry generally feels, I think, uh, they, they are generally for carbon pricing. Uh, uh, actually kind of something that, uh, we found recently is that, uh, when the federal pricing came along, Shell was, uh, Shell Energy was actually very, very supportive of it. And I think, uh, the main reason is that the way that the pricing policy is structured, it's very transparent, and uh, and there's a longer term horizon for them to really understand and consider when they make business decisions. Uh, generally, what what industry what industry doesn't want is kind of shifting policies year to year or or something that is very difficult for them to understand. If they can see the cost and if they can understand it and and understand how it applies to their operations. They can plan around it. Or they can make decisions that are. Um, they can make decisions that would work with the pricing, uh, rather than uh, worry about you know what changes may come up along um, later on that that would kind of reverse some of their plans. Um, and I think the other piece uh, why industry is generally supportive of it is that uh, the government have done a fairly good job in terms of consultation with industry when they were setting up and they were uh, designing these policies. And you, you see that in terms of that, uh, that output-based pricing system, the industrial benchmark program. Um, and that program is generally meant to uh, provide relief to kind of large uh, facilities uh, in, in the country that uh, would generally be uh, what we consider trade exposed. So if you input a common pricing, they're more likely to move the operation elsewhere. So because of that stakeholder consultation and because of a fairly robust uh, communication process, uh, we, we found that uh, the industries generally got uh, what they want in terms of stability and in terms of fairness uh, when, when kind of these uh, benchmarks are put into place. 
and, and that really did kind of help uh, that really did kind of push the industry to really support these pricing because without industry support it's very easy for uh, for us to see uh, you know them uh, really lobbying for different uh, types of pricing programs or laxer pricing programs or or more relaxed uh, regulatory regimes, and we're not really seeing that at this point. So I think I think it's a good thing at this point that uh, we we do have the industry support, and I think that's also global too. We're, it's not just Canada uh, that we're seeing the support. Uh, kind of across the world, we're seeing more industry kind of signing up um, and understanding carbon pricing and really incorporating it into their business strategies. So you mentioned earlier how British Columbia implemented their carbon tax in 2008, uh, which made it the first comprehensive and substantial carbon tax in North America and ultimately resulted in reduced emissions in the province. What lessons can the rest of the country take from BC's experience so far? Yeah, uh, so I kind of do want to give a quick background first on the carbon uh, BC carbon tax. It, you know, I just mentioned in the passing, uh, the tax itself is not unlike of what we see in the federal uh, fuel charge system now. So uh, it is priced on a per uh, carbon dioxide equivalent basis. Uh, what we have right now is about a $30 a ton uh, since 2008, and but that price hasn't really been changed for a long time. Uh, it, will ex it will eventually go up to 50 uh, by 2021. Uh, and, I, and that tax uh, is also similar to the uh, federal system in that it's uh, revenue neutral. So uh, you would pay the tax on your uh, on your fuel bills, but you also get that uh, money back in terms of your tax returns. So uh, I think kind of two major lessons uh, from BC. Uh, first one is uh, due to uh, a negative and intended consequence coming out of the BC program, and the second one is a positive consequence out of the BC program. So uh, in terms of that kind of negative consequence was that when they put that price on carbon in BC back in 2008, uh, the leakage concern wasn't uh, really top of mind at that point. Uh, so what we actually did see uh, for the cement industry was that the carbon tax was actually applied to them. And we fairly quickly saw uh, that the cement industry actually disappeared in BC. And what we actually came back with was a lot of uh, imports of cement um, from uh, from China. So in that sense, um, the the policy itself uh, didn't work as intended because, yeah, they they applied the tax on carbon, but globally we're actually still really uh, we we have the same impact in terms of emissions when it comes from uh, when it comes from the cement industry, and now they can't really regulate or they don't really have visibility on that kind on on that source of emission. Uh, so and I think kind of. Uh, what came out of that lesson is the uh, the output based pricing system, the OBPS, where uh, they were able to address uh, kind of leakage concerns. They are able to consult industry and they um, and they do listen and kind of make make sure uh, that they are considered in terms of kind of this economic and trade exposure impact. Uh, the second lesson is the positive one is the longevity I think of the carbon system over in BC. So that system's been in place for what was it 11 years now, almost up to 12. And that's actually lasted through three general elections. So, and I think uh, kind of and from a global perspective, when uh, when when different countries and different uh, foreign governments look at the BC program, they really point to the longevity of the program uh, uh, due to the revenue neutral aspect of the tax. 
Uh, and that kind of did gain kind of sustaining support of a pricing system uh, when when the, uh, when the photo base really knows that you know it, it is a pricing signal, not necessarily a wealth impact uh, overall. So uh, I think that's uh, and I think kind of uh, both lessons really have a strong hand in designing what we saw as the current federal policy today. So many other countries have opted for cap and trade policies instead of carbon taxes. It's my understanding that Australia and Canada have comparable energy and natural resource industries, but Australia also chose a cap-and-trade policy instead. So what do you think the advantages and disadvantages are of choosing a tax over cap-and-trade? Yeah, uh, this is one of my favorite topics because I had to uh, really learn and dive deep on both the cap-and-trade system as well as the uh, the tax system that we currently have now. Uh Stepping back a little bit, uh, we haven't really talked about kind of the mechanics of cap and trade. Uh, so I'm going to kind of flip your question around and talk more about cap and trade first, uh, the advantages and disadvantages we see in terms of cap and trade compared to the current tax system. So just a brief explanation on cap and trade. Uh, it's uh, like the name suggests, it comes in two parts. The cap is where uh, the program itself actually limits the number of emission allowances that can exist in any given year within the system, so uh, and, and that's really meant to uh, fix the amount of uh, emissions that, uh, the, that uh, any participant in the program in total can emit. So it, it's a fairly strong cap in that uh, under the, these kind of programs, you generally don't see emission exceeding, uh, exceeding this cap, uh, or even if they do, it might be very minor uh, because the cap is generally very strong. Now, the trade aspect of it uh, more have to do with once these emission allowances are, are distributed to uh, the participants of this program, uh, they have the ability to freely trade these allowances. So, uh, which means that um, which means that kind of if a participant is fairly green or they're really good at controlling the emissions, they're able to kind of find measures to uh, further reduce energy usage or change their production to to emit less carbon, they're able to kind of bank those allowances and sell it to uh, another facility where uh, maybe they don't have that choice. They don't necessarily have a way uh, to limit their emissions yet. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, when that kind of market trading mechanisms happen, uh, what we generally see is uh, lower carbon prices in order to meet that cap. And so, uh, and and. What you see kind of in the Quebec system, and that's why it's able to exist under the federal program, is that uh, Quebec has cap and trade. Even though its kind of carbon prices is generally lower, uh, it still meets that federal standard of reducing emissions because they are able to put that hard cap on the entire province, or at least kind of in conjunction with California. Now, uh, so uh, we talked about kind of the advantage, which is that it's generally lower cost per uh, unit of emission because of the free trade, and there's kind of more uh, flexibility and compliance option as well. So uh, a facility can hold on to that uh, emission limit and use it later. They can sell it now, or they can, uh, in, in some cases, kind of uh, set procurement plans to to really buy these allowances off the system, or or they could say, I only want to buy uh, allowances when it's only below a certain level because above a certain price, I am going to go do something about it in terms of uh, figuring out a mit mitigation strategy, etc. Now, the uh, one of the issues uh, with cap and trade that we found was that um, it's fairly complex. 
uh, in terms of understanding the program, participating in the program, and also uh, in terms of the way that markets are driving the prices as well. So um, I'll talk about the complexity piece of it first, uh, which is that uh, a lot of these uh, participants in these programs, they it, it takes a long time for them to understand the program, for them to implement a cap-and-trade strategy, to go to markets to, to auction for these allowances, or, or to really come with a procurement plan that is... Uh, that have kind of a set budget. So uh, with cap-and-trade, because the prices tend to fluctuate, it's difficult for them to grasp what uh, that cost of carbon would be. And in, in the end, it actually makes it a little bit more difficult for them to plan in terms of making a business case for reduction in emission reduction strategies, etc. Now, the second piece uh, that I find have been um, a disadvantage compared to a more simple tax is that um, there are external forces that could also drive prices. Uh, what we've seen uh, in 2007, uh, when we when Ontario had cap-and-trade along with Quebec and California, was that uh, California all of a sudden got hit with a lawsuit really questioning the legality of the cap-and-trade system. Lawsuit's been settled, uh, so uh, it is legal. Uh, California still have this program. But at this time, uh, because there was a risk to the system as a whole, we really did see uh, these kind of emission unit price plummet. Uh, one, because a lot of uh, companies are really just holding back and say, well, I don't know if this program is going to still be in place. I'm just going to hold back and do nothing for now and wait until we, we can better assess the risk uh, in terms of kind of a portfolio, in terms of whether this program is still going to be in place or do we need to do something else. So um, I, I think kind of uh, that that's the difficulty with cap and trade. Yes, it's more efficient, but it's generally harder for businesses to grab. Now, with the tax, though, uh, it's easier to understand, but it does take a bit of a higher price compared to the cap and trade system for it to be effective. So, uh, if looking at pure price signal itself, uh, I think uh, kind of the general consensus is it's about sixty-five dollars per ton to about a hundred dollars per ton in order for that price signal to really drive changes in uh, consumer choices. So um, it's, it's the efficiency argument. Hey, it's, it's kind of expensive. Uh, it's kind of expensive compared to a uh, cap-and-trade auction where it's kind of more market efficient. But uh, I think uh, along with that, uh, kind of that revenue neutrality of the current system really does help address some of that because it's still a price signal, but it have uh, much less wealth impact on everyday consumers. All right. So this question is about the potential for international cooperation. Canada contributes less than 2% of global greenhouse gases. So my sense is that Canada's actions have to be coordinated with other countries' reductions to have a substantial effect. Do you think that this will happen? And what happens if Canada were to go it alone? Hmm. Uh, so, yes, you're correct. Uh, Canada makes up a very small percentage of global emission, but um, I think it's very interesting to see that they actually have a very large presence in the global stage uh, that far outsizes kind of the emissions that we would uh, control. And I think a lot of that is because uh, Canada intentionally be, uh, became a leader internationally in uh, kind of carbon pricing, uh, strategies, uh, setting carbon pricing policies, and uh, really kind of took on the mantle of uh, really driving this change. Uh, so, for example, uh, our uh, well, previous Prime Minister Catherine McKenna, uh, Minister of Environment, 
she was the inaugural chair of uh, the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. So uh, this was an organization, nonprofit, backed by the World Bank, where uh, kind of uh, governments uh, internationally came together to share learnings about what's the best way to implement carbon pricing strategies, uh, what uh, sharing lessons about uh, how. Uh, what strategies work in terms of implementation, what strategies work in terms of communication, uh, and in terms of kind of setting uh, these kind of policies that are robust, uh, that make sense to each of the governments, and that are long-lasting. Uh, so, and uh, Blackstone and, and myself, we've kind of participated in a lot of these calls as kind of this uh, group evolved, and we've really seen a lot of changes in terms of the uh, membership countries really uh, really starting to take action on uh, understanding and uh, implementing carbon pricing uh, policies because the it, it's a lot easier for them to kind of learn from uh, leaders rather than kind of go at it uh, themselves alone. Now, uh, we are also a leader on uh, really reducing uh, our reliance on coal from power consumption, not just uh, nationally but internationally as well. So uh, Canada, along with the UK, is leading on uh, the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which now has about 80 uh, governments across the globe to really help face out uh, coal power and accelerate clean growth. Uh, I, I think kind of uh, as examples of kind of what we've done as provinces in terms of what we saw in Quebec with the cap and trade system and with BC, uh, those are kind of key lessons that we can kind of share with the world to, for them to learn, hey, here's, here are some of the things that work and some of the things that don't work. Um, and I think in terms of uh, whether if Canada is going to go at it alone, uh, I think maybe if we were to ask the question five years ago, uh, I think possibly there could be a chance. But now, like given, given the Paris Agreement, uh, with kind of really the world signing on in terms of uh, agreeing to mitigate uh, carbon emissions and agreeing to kind of work together uh, globally, uh, I, I don't think there's much of a chance now. So one of the major key pieces in this coming up agreement, uh, I guess in December, uh, would be in Spain now, uh, would be really working out the details of what's called Article 6 under the, um, the Paris Agreement, uh, which in simple terms is really... Um, a common set of rules for all governments across the globe in tracking emissions and tracking how they're reduced. Uh, and in this kind of, in this piece, uh, what they're really working out is how do they, uh, really, uh, work out kind of the sinks and balances between countries into, uh, this mechanism called, uh, ITMO, Internationally Transferred Mitigation Outcomes. So, and I think kind of this piece is meant to help governments link their efforts together. Uh, and avoid double counting for one, but also uh, to make sure that uh, everyone's kind of uh, kept, uh, everyone's going to be able to keep their promises and what they submitted to the Paris Agreements in terms of their, uh, in terms of their re stated uh, intentions to reduce. So, uh, yeah, I, I think now there's uh, very little chance that Canada go at it alone, which is a good thing. Okay, so just bringing it back into the Canadian context a little bit more. Um, We've learned that economists have focused on the efficiency involved in setting a constant carbon price across Canada. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on this issue. Yeah, uh, as an economist, we always love efficiency. Uh, so I think uh, really uh, the way that we think about uh, efficiency uh, in terms of kind of constant carbon price, if we think about achieving kind of the most bang for the buck, or, or really kind of making sure that we're setting 
setting kind of these carbon prices at a point where we don't really need to uh, set them up too high in order to kind of drive certain uh, kind of actions and certain reductions. Now, uh, because if it's a peer pricing signal, generally what we find is that, like I've said before, it's uh, less efficient compared to a cap-and-trade system where kind of the market dictates the prices. You generally need a much higher uh, pricing signal in order to drive the same type of emissions. Uh, but I think kind of the general consensus is that um, when it comes to efficiency, um, what we found was that we can't really just look at it from an academic or a conceptual perspective. Uh, when we had cap and trade and uh, when we were working with clients to really understand how um, how kind of this type of system works, a lot more kind of costs came up than we would have anticipated, than uh, a lot of our clients have anticipated. It's and it's the cost of really understanding the program. It's the time that's, uh, that's needed to a lot to uh, really... Uh, making sure uh, that the, the company is in compliance with the, this kind of complex system. And I think, uh, and in some cases, uh, we've even found uh, some, uh, some industrial clients actually creating positions uh, purely to manage uh, cap-and-trade uh, policies alone. So when it comes to efficiency, I think it, we, we kind of need to look outside of just kind of transfer efficiencies between pricing signals and really think about kind of from a more holistic perspective uh, whether an intended piece of policy that's meant to be efficient, whether there's kind of additional costs that we haven't really thought about. Uh, a lot of cases, um, uh, I, I think kind of that's why uh, carbon tax policies are, are becoming more and more popular because there are generally less that you need to learn and less that you need to do. The process is a bit more transparent. Uh, a, a carbon price is a carbon price that you can apply. Uh, and it's generally pretty static, and, and we're not expecting a lot of volatility in understanding kind of the economic impact uh, or, or financial impact to an organization. And I think the second piece that kind of twists that efficiency argument is the longevity of the program. So uh, from, from a cap-and-trade perspective, what we saw was that because the, compact was, the program was so complex, it wasn't just the companies trying to having difficulty wrapping their heads around it. The media was, and I think a lot of um, a lot of really everyday everyday consumer was as well. So, and what happened ended up happening was that there were a lot more uh, room for misinterpretation, uh, which uh, I think from our experience led to uh, the risk. And and eventually, what happened was the carbon uh, the cap and trade program went away because there's kind of more ways to kind of attack that program now. I think kind of with the with the way that it's currently set up now with the fuel levy uh, and it being revenue neutral, I think kind of stability is really key. Uh, there's no point of having an efficient program that kind of goes away in two years rather than having kind of a, a less efficient program that we know will generally stand the test of time. So it will last five, ten years until we really figure out something better. So it's, it's really one of those things that I think uh, really need to be kept in mind when we when we put our economic lens on kind of understanding policies and programs. Ken, I've already learned a great deal. So I just want to thank you on behalf of our class for clearly uh, your prepared and thoughtful answers to the class questions. I did want to, before, I'm conscious of the time, before kind of ending, give you an opportunity. Maybe if, I don't know if there was something that uh, we haven't touched on or there are other issues that listeners might want to be aware of kind of moving forward if you wanted to touch on any of those. Yeah. 
first of all, I just want to say the questions were uh, really amazing, and I think kind of the way that they're asked, I think they really kind of get at the different aspects and perspective of this. You know, it's more simple than cap and trade, but still a really complex set of programs and policies in place. And I think kind of with the with the podcast, I think you kind of really teased out the really important pieces for people to know. Uh, so some of the things that we really didn't have time to talk about is uh, is kind of I just really want to address the fact that we can't really look at a single piece of policy in a vacuum. So um, it is a pan-Canadian framework. Uh, within kind of this framework, there are more than just uh, the uh, carbon pricing policy. So uh, even even just think about the fact that uh, a tax is a tax until it's not when, when you, you can consider kind of different ways that you can implement that tax. Uh, the key piece here being revenue neutrality, uh, being uh, a kind of a key uh, a key reason why uh, we are seeing kind of more uh, more longer term carbon policies and more kind of politically stable uh, policies. So um, and and I think kind of uh, in terms of kind of a suite of policies, it's really important to also understand the other things that. Uh, that may entail when it comes to kind of limiting or uh, or regulating emissions, and it's kind of a carrot and a stick as well. So uh, the the tax is kind of the stick, but we also see a lot of incentive programs in place that uh, we uh, incentive program in place that can drive further emissions down. Uh, and then I think the last point I want to make is that um, yeah, don't uh, just just something to keep in mind is don't just think about uh, Policy and don't really measure policy only on efficiency. Uh, I think there are many more pieces to really think about uh, whether a policy is good or not. I, I think kind of economic frameworks is very useful in terms of kind of really distilling uh, the key informations and the key drivers in any given policy, but that's not the only thing. I think kind of with what we've seen in Canada is that uh, communication matters, transparency matters, and I think... Uh, and I think kind of public opinion on a program also matters a lot. So there's a whole kind of suite of uh, constraints and really uh, kind of political considerations that we need to think about when designing a piece of policy. And uh, and, and I think kind of right now we're, we're doing a fairly good job, but uh, we'll see over the next couple of years and how this will evolve. Ken Poon, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.